Welcome to our panel of speakers today, who I will introduce in just a minute. In this podcast, we want to explore how we can transform coasts to be prepared for current and future social and environmental challenges. In my work, I've been talking to people working on coastal management on England's south and east coasts to find out what the challenges and opportunities for adapting to climate change are. In those interviews, I was especially interested in hearing their thoughts on the role and opportunity for transformational adaptation, longer term, larger scale or system change adaptation options. Today, we explore with three experts what transformational adaptation on the coast is, what it might look like in a south coast context, what the barriers and opportunities are to transformational adaptation, and what we can learn from the south coast for national policy and decision making on coastal adaptation. Our three speakers are here as individuals, representing not their organisations, but speaking from their long-standing experiences, learning and working in the coastal context. Firstly, I would like to introduce myself and Wasim, who will be facilitating today's discussion. I'm Dr. Wasim van der Plunk. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Exeter and a visiting researcher at the University of Southampton. I research the role, resilience and opportunities for individuals, communities and local stakeholders in coastal adaptation to current and future hazards. Joining us from the University of Southampton, we also have Dr. Wasim Dubuk, Marine and Maritime Policy Research Fellow with a background in maritime law. Secondly, I would like to introduce our three guests on today's podcast. We have Dr. Charlie Thompson, Senior Lecturer in Sediment Dynamics and Coastal Processes and Director of the Channel Coastal Observatory, lead organisation of the National Network of Regional Coastal Monitoring Programmes of England. We also welcome Uwe Dorenbusch, living in Sussex and working on coastal issues for 22 years, working in academia, consultancy, and for the last 12 years as senior coastal specialist at the Environment Agency, here today in personal capacity. Finally, I'd like to welcome Tim Lawton, Member of Parliament for East Worthing and Shoreham since 1997. His areas of expertise are home affairs and children. He's the member of the Home Affairs Select Committee and former children's minister, He's also Vice Chairman of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Coastal Communities. A warm welcome to all three of you. We're really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on transformational adaptation from your diverse experiences and areas of expertise. Now, I'd really like to take this opportunity to allow you to introduce yourselves. Um, if I may, Tim, could you introduce yourself, explain how you've gotten to this place today, and perhaps also reflect on what transformational adaptation means to you in your capacity. Okay, thanks, Sam. So my interest in this is really, firstly, as a coastal MP. So I've represented the constituency of East Worthing and Shoreham in Sussex for 25 years um, now. It's, it's a fairly typical English coastal constituency with a mix of tourism, um, although not quite as glamorous a tourism as we expect from, uh, you know, hotter resorts these uh, these days. The the residual vestiges of, of a fishing industry, not much um, now. So outlying commuter uh, town, uh, a retirement town, typically a high pensioner um, uh, uh, proportion of, uh, of, of residents. So it's a typical coastal town that's, I think, really slightly struggling to identify its role in the 21st century, having historically been a bucket and spade type uh, type resort. Um, but that brings problems with it. And again, typical of many coastal constituencies, there are high levels of deprivation. So typically you will see under 
achievement in uh, education right the way through from a primary uh, level with people leaving school without the uh, attainment uh, levels in reading, writing, things like that, certainly from primary school. Uh, a higher level of uh, kids on free school meals, um, reflecting deprivation, uh, and fewer going to uh, university and and upskilling uh, effectively. So that has knock-on effects for obviously the career and economic prosperity prospects of generations of, uh, of children growing up in coastal communities. That also is, is impacted in health outcomes. Again, you will see uh, the mortality uh, rates uh, tend to be worse than um, inland uh, communities, but also the length of healthy living. So you may have a lot of older um, people, but obviously not as healthy older people as, um, uh, as well. And then the, the economic outcomes for coastal um, communities, typically uh, you'll have a higher proportion of um, coastal communities in lower economic output per, per head. So for all of those um, reasons, looking at what we can do specifically targeted coastal um, communities is, is really important. We've been sort of rather left behind. So when the government talks about levelling up and it talks about how we help deprived communities particularly in inner cities and particularly in the north of England, it completely ignores the fact that we've got pockets of deprivation and, and social problems specific to coastal uh, communities in the south of England, in the southwest of England, in the east coast of England or whatever, which is why we have this all-party parliamentary group trying to get special recognition and special help and support for those coastal communities across all those areas I've mentioned and more besides. Thank you, Tim. And would you say that that also, in a way, like the opposite side of that coin encapsulates what you see transformational adaptation to be? Well, there are also some fantastic opportunities. So if I take again my own um, patch, we need to do better from an early age. So what I would like to see in terms of transformation is actually an equivalent of what happened in the previous Labour government some 20 years ago when they came up with something called the City Challenge Fund for London. We had real problems with achievement in London schools, particularly in the East End of London, where you had a much higher um, migrant population with English as a second language, where they were really facing um, disadvantage. And I think everybody acknowledged that. So the government focused additional resources, uh, and that did involve um, funding, on prioritising those schools. And it had a good deal of success in raising the attainment level of many of those, um, those communities. And also, we need to do much better on health outcomes with preventative stuff um, uh, early as well. But in terms of opportunities, there is something really exciting uh, to do with the environment, where I think there are huge opportunities uniquely available to coastal communities. So in my area, we have one of the largest offshore wind farms uh, in the country, which is uh, trying to expand its output fourfold. So it will be producing something like 1.4 gigabytes, powering potentially well over a million uh, homes. Uh, and everybody is, well, most people are very um, favourable to, uh, towards that. Uh, but we also have a really exciting project called the Sussex Kelp Farm Project, about restoring traditional kelp beds and, uh, and seaweed, which has been largely depleted, partly through bottom trawling and fishing methods. And we've now changed the bylaws to ban that. Uh, and now we've got a very serious prospect coming together about planting a kelp farm, which really addresses climate change on a number of fronts. Seaweed absorbs six times more carbon than trees. 
everybody goes on about planting more trees. We have a, an unoccupied seabed, which could be doing an awful lot on, uh, on climate change. Seaweed can act as a feed for humans, the superfood for livestock as a fertilizer, and given that fertilizer prices have gone up three or fourfold in, uh, uh, after recent events in Ukraine and the energy uh, spike, it's a very attractive natural um, fertilizer, and it provides spawning grounds for uh, and feeding grounds for marine life as, uh, as, as well. Uh, and we also uh, are looking to become a hydrogen hub at the Shoreham um, port. Uh, and if you can produce green hydrogen from uh, renewable electricity, perhaps through the, uh, the offshore wind farm that we, we have, all of a sudden, we have the prospects for a very green energy producing uh, economy in what's otherwise been a fairly lower skilled uh, economic bywater in some, uh, in some cases. Uh, and that is by virtue of being a coastal community rather than uh, facing all the challenges of being a coastal community. So that's the sort of transformation I want to see. It's upskilling and it's taking advantage of our environmental opportunities that we uniquely have in a coastal area. Thanks again, Tim. I think you've you've set a really high standard for this <laughs> conversation already and, and lots raised lots of topics that I'm sure we'll dig into further. I think it'll also be interesting now to ask Ua to introduce himself and to hear what I expect to be a slightly different definition of transformational adaptation. Yes, so, so I'm coming from a physical geography, geomorphology background that started off in in uh, looking at climate change over a longer geological timescales. So, so I've 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 stood somewhere in the Andes where there used to be glaciers twenty thousand years ago, and today there are no longer. Um, coming to England, I moved into coastal uh, research and. And over time, obviously, we realize that, that there is a large uh, difficulty between or um, not really conflict, but, 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 but something's rubbing between natural environments and coasts, especially sea level rise and people living on the coast. And, and in, 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 in the way sort of, of transformational, um, I, I was really taken back in 2005 when, when DEFRA published Making Space for Water. And the content is, is not that, that thrilling, but, but the title, Making Space for Water, seemed to signal a, a complete change from the previous um, engineering assumption that sort of started after World War II and um, the uh, Coast Protection Act in 1949 and, and, and obviously 1953, uh, the East Coast flooding, where it was basically we need to keep the water out uh, at all costs. And obviously we have seen over the last 70 years that this is impossible. So therefore, making space for water sounded absolutely revolutionary. Um, and, and that is what, what I would see. Um, and in the case for the South Coast, obviously, um, there are issues, but there are obviously also opportunities. But, but if we're thinking of increasing um, maritime businesses, for example, they need to start from somewhere on land um, or from somewhere at the interface. And that interface is the difficult part. Brilliant. I can already tell that this is going to be a very multifaceted and 
um, interesting conversation. And we've still got Charlie to introduce herself and to find out what her understanding of transformation adaptation is. Hi, yeah. So so my background is from um, more of the modern day processes. Um, so um, it's originally in sediment dynamics and looking at sediment transport. But really, my research is focused on um, coasts as an area of exchange and transformation in general. So whether that be the exchange of materials between the seabed and the water or, you know, the, the movement of the, the shoreline um, backwards and forwards, um, but also involving the kind of social aspects of that as well um, and the people's understanding of the coasts and the dynamicism um, of this as a whole system and um, and kind of treating it as a, as a holistic whole rather than looking at individual elements that we might need to control and a lot of I think you know, moving towards a lot of the more of the working with nature approaches to coastal defence sees a, a trend towards that, um, which actually I think on the south coast we've been quite good at doing that, especially with, you know, things like beach nourishment and recycling of, of uh, beach materials um, shows that we're moving towards that. Um, but with my work through the Channel Coastal Observatory, one of the key things there is is providing data and evidence to try and understand processes and the problems that are being faced so that the decisions can be made on the basis of you know a full understanding of those processes um, and hopefully be informed by them to work with them rather than against them uh, moving into the future. So I mean my hope is that you know, when we're talking about transformational change, it's something that involves, you know, understanding and working with natural processes, but also ensuring that coastal communities and um, people that work at the coasts really embrace that and understand that and are part of that as well. Wow. Well, thank you and, and welcome again to our three guests today. I think we've got a lot of topics to cover and it's going to be really interesting to see these three very diverse perspectives on them. Wasim, I'm going to invite you to lead the discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sine. Thank you, everyone. I think uh, your introductions have been brilliant and they offer a perfect segue for me to jump into straight into the conversation now. And um, initially, I think we, we'd, we'd want to start by learning more about your vision for the South Coast. Um, so maybe from your respective perspectives, um, what do you think is unique about the South Coast? And maybe with more particularly and with a look into the future, um, what adaptation needs uh, do you think are specific to the South Coast region? I mean, if, if, if I start first, if, if, I, if I think of the South Coast and I, I, I take the two Sussexes, West and East Sussex, to, to cater for Tim to some degree, but... Um, they are actually fairly well-off coasts in the sense that there's they are fairly natural still. There's 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 beaches there. Uh, the beaches are not really declining. They they are quite stable. But that that on the one hand uh, provides a sort of sense of security that doesn't go forward basically because. 
those those beaches will experience higher waves. They will experience more sediment transport along the beach. So we see this already in in East Sussex, where the amount of of recycling is is increasing with time, and with sea level rise, that will increase as well. So there's there's basically a a decision to be made between two transformations. One is uh, you try and maintain a beach, but you can't maintain it in the location where it is, i.e. your tourist um, economy is, is maintained, but, but you have to sacrifice the front 100 meters or something, you have to go somewhere else. Or you, you, you keep your promenade, but you put uh, rock everywhere in front of it, which uh, again would be a transformation because you're losing your, your tourism, basically. So it's it has to change one way or the other, uh, but but there's no possibility going forward into the future to maintain the status quo. Can can I pick up on on that from environmental point of view? There's quite a contrast across uh, Sussex. So carrying on from what you just said, um, we've got serious coastal erosion problems in East Sussex. So if you look at the coastal erosion on the on the cliffs, uh, which is carrying on at an alarming rate and big falls onto the beaches, which are making the beaches slightly difficult to to, to, to populate. If we look at river valleys like Cookmere uh, Haven, where the Environment Agency um, controversially took the view that it should be left to nature rather than continue to try and uh, defend it, um, is a, is going to be an, a difficult debate to, um, uh, to, to have. And if we look at the more managed parts of the coastline, which tend to be around the tourist uh, resorts and the beaches, then there has been a lot of investment. I certainly in our part of Sussex and West Sussex, where you've got resorts like Worthing uh, and Shoreham and Chichester further along, uh, there are a lot of resources gone in from the Environment Agency about uh, producing sea defences, constantly moving uh, shingle to uh, uh, and replacing groins and everything. But actually, going back to one of the earlier things I, I mentioned, one of the biggest paybacks from uh, kelp farming is on sea defences because of the energy absorption uh, naturally by uh, uh, by seaweed is actually is the biggest um, bang for your buck you get by having uh, kelp forests uh, there. It means that you need to spend less on on sea defences because you're dissipating the energy uh, that causes all those uh, all those shifts. So it's it's a there's a contrasting experience on the coastline in the, in Sussex as to the impact that climate change and everything else is having on it and, and what's being done to manage that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting talking about the um, the kelp restoration project and, and there's other um, similar projects that are looking at um, seagrass restoration and things around the south coast as well. And, and I think there's quite a lot of innovation in looking at those ways of naturally damping um, uh, waves in a lot of cases i i don't think it well it doesn't necessarily remove the need for um uh, for coastal defense but rather reduces how big it would have to be um and and it's a really interesting way forward i think one of some of the problems associated with it though is is really in our understanding of why we've lost these habitats to start with um, and, and what is it that's impacted these ecosystems that they haven't been sustained? Because if it's something like, you know, fishing and dredging action, 
well, there are things that can be done to mitigate against that. And the no trawling zones um, along the Sussex coast is a good example of that. Um, but if it's climate change and other things, it might be harder to restore some of these habitats in these areas. Um, if, if, if possible, I mean, the um, I'm all for kelp forests because kelp forests have been there and they provide an enormous uh, environmental benefit and and for the food chain and I mean, it's just there's no question uh, we, we, we seem to fall into the trap to try and find additional benefits that we can somehow magic out of thin air and and the protection aspect is is always put forward there's no study suggesting that the kelp forests that we would expect at the Sussex coast would have any impact on uh, coastal processes, even more so because SCOPAC, the Standing Conference for Pro uh, Problems Associated with the Coast, was was founded because there were problems on the coast in terms of erosion um, when the kelp forest was still present. So, on the other hand, the kelp forest uh, and, and the difficulty with kelp is, is there any way that uh, it disappears in the winter when we would need it most to uh, protect against storm waves is that as the kelp forest disappears um, a lot of uh, the, the vegetable detritus ends up on the beach uh, with associated large problems for the local authorities that have to clear this off or think they have to clear this off uh, before Easter when the tourists come so um, as I said <sighs> Kelp forests are absolutely brilliant and, and, and we need to restore them, but we can't hang our hope for maintaining the coast as is on, on a few bits of, of kelp out in the sea. Especially as sea level rises, the kelp will be lower and lower down in the water column because we are not getting the long, five, ten meter long fronds of, of kelp. We get a fairly small, stocky uh, breed in Sussex. Can I beg to differ? Because I mean, there has been a study which is behind why now there's a funding scheme in in, in progress for the the pilot uh, kelp farm um, planting, and more work is being done with some funding from uh, Defra, who now acknowledge that this has got some um, some interesting uh, prospects. And on a bang for your buck basis, interestingly, I thought it would be the sort of carbon absorption um, uh, credits, but it's actually uh, wave mitigation um, measures and savings to sea defences that comes out as the biggest single uh, single factor. Now, that's a preliminary um, uh, study. And of course, it's only a small part of what needs to be done to defend our uh, our shores, particularly with uh, with climate change and the effects on rising uh, rising tides, so I, I entirely ag agree with uh, uh, with that. And of course, you can't plant seaweed um, everywhere because it will be in too deeper deeper water. But there is a very large area of uh, of more shallow waters around the whole coast, and Sussex Bay is a good example where there's a large area of that where you can't can plant kelp, but it has to be done in a farmed and managed way. I think there's some people who think that we can just um, replant and rewild um, kelp and then leave it to grow to its own devices. Now, that used to be the problem in Worthing. The Worthing, one of the origins of the word Worthing is the Saxon word for seaweed. 
because Worthing always used to have a problem with seaweed being washed up on the uh, on the beaches, and then certainly in the hotter weather, it uh, it would rot and decay, and you could smell Worthing well before you could uh, you could see it. Now, in the old days, farmers used to bring their tractors onto the beach and and pick it all up because it was used as a natural uh, fertilizer. When commercial fertilizers became more readily um, available, they stopped doing that, and then we had a problem with rotting seaweed. Then the kelp beds disappeared, so we no longer had a problem with uh, uh, with rotting seaweed. If we are to make a success of this, then it needs to be farmed and managed in the same way as you would farm a crop uh, on uh, on land, as farmers do at the uh, at the moment, which would mitigate against stray seaweed. Of course, you're not going to mitigate against the whole of it, just getting washed up on the uh, on the beach. So this has to be done in a managed a managed way. But potentially, the commercial prospects for it make that uh, a feasible uh, undertaking. I wonder if I can just pick up on something that that both Eva and Tim mentioned that that slightly takes it on a different direction. Which, which is both, um, both of you mentioned this um, approach in terms of protecting the coast as it is. And, and if we're thinking about transformation, you know, should, you know, yes, this might be a novel, a new way of trying to protect the coast, but should we think, be thinking more about allowing the coast to act more naturally, generally? You know, sh- should we be defending all of the coastline at all? or not and is you know it, it's a difficult question i don't have an answer well that's the big question with cookmere valley isn't it which is a which is a case in point which is a big tourist attraction lots of people go and you know walk and uh, exercise and use the uh, and use the river uh, cookmere very prone to to flooding a lot of money's been spent on trying to build up um, banks but then when you get heavy uh, uh, heavy water uh, levels uh, it floods the whole of the the plain there so hence there is a case, as the Environment Agency tried to make, that we should just let it completely go back to nature, but then it would take it out of use for, for various recreational um, uh, users uh, locally. Um, and that's a debate to be, to be had, and I, and I don't know the answer um, uh, either. Uh, but you can look at uh, examples like Sturt um, uh, on the River Parrot, where they, the managed realignment there, which was quite controversial at the time, has actually been a very um, successful tourist attraction in itself and has provided a lot of amenity um, uh, and tourism to that area. So, you know, that these kind of managed realignments can be quite beneficial, I think, to some communities. And the same applies to Metmory, which is still on the south mm. coast. So um, it, it it is... One of the things is is going forward is where do you want to spend your money, and and the the question of the cookmere is there are no properties at risk, so so that makes spending money uh, difficult. Yeah. Um, obviously, there, there are there, there's there's farmers there, but with sea level rise, those fields will become unfarmable anyway. Uh, they probably would last. You, you can probably last let them last another 20, 30 years. But the problem is not going away. And the costs for for maintaining as is at the moment is is just not not uh, in comparison anywhere to to the benefits that you get get out of it. And I think that is we have, along the coast we have we have. We have a lot of um, locations where we have held the line for 
more than a hundred years uh, at, at, at climping. We, we've, we, we, there's on the beach, there's evidence of four generations of groins that have been built. And, and every groin field lasts whatever, 40 years roundabout. So this fits actually quite nicely with those assumptions. But at some point you have to say, well, sea level rise over the last 120 years in, in our area has been about 20 centimeters. So it has become more and more difficult already to maintain the coastline in the position that it was um, 120, 150 years ago. So by, by, by moving the coastline further backwards, you, you can again have a beach, probably even without a groin field. Um, but it just is not in the same place. And, and much of West Sussex is sort of gradually sloping towards the South Downs upwards. So there aren't huge areas like in Lincolnshire or so that, that would flood. And, and it is the process of, because sea level rise is fairly slow, so there's plenty of time to start moving houses either landwards or upwards. And, and, and having recently accidentally come across the story of Chicago, in the 1850s to 70s raised the entire then city of Chicago by several meters up or moved houses uh, to other places because they were, well, they had built in a swamp basically and couldn't get the drainage right. There is a pathway to adapt in a, in a, in a, in a different way. It just is, is a longer term project, but we need to start this now. Thank you very much. I think it's it's really nice to see your um, your different views on the topic, and then this actually moves me easily into the substance of it. And when we can have a bit more of a discussion around the changes or the barriers for adaptation in the South Coast, and based on what you've been talking about just now, would you say that there's specific need for transformation adaptation on the South Coast? Do you think that this is an approach that's needed there? And if so, do you think that there are any concrete examples that you can think of where transformation adaptation has been applied. And I think more importantly, um, how does climate change affect your thinking about it and uh, affects uh, decision-making around adaptation in your view? Shall I, shall I tip in there? I mean, just ex extending the, what we've been talking about as, uh, as, as well, the, he is quite quite right. There are areas of the coastline where there are no houses, and actually in Cookmere Haven, there's not really any farming. It's rough, it's rough, rough grazing, so you can't even justify any economic uh, benefit on um, on that. But a large part of Sussex, and particularly West Sussex, where you know Brighton all the way through to the other side of Worthing is very rapidly becoming a single coastal strip. There is a very large number of the population who live not much above sea level very close to uh, to, to to beaches um, and that is why we've absolutely got to continue to invest in the sea defenses that we that we have quite regardless of whether kelp beds add to that or or not we are we will need to to protect that so we can't let nature completely take uh, rip in those those high residential areas um, so adaptation must be about recognizing the value of those communities on the uh, uh, on the seafront um, it's all about upskilling communities which have traditionally been in sort of lower paid sectors around uh, hospitality 
fishing, you know, uh, originally a bit of uh, agriculture um, too. But there's also big demographic changes going on. Um, and this has been exacerbated during, uh, because of COVID, I think, to an extent as well. Um, coastal communities are becoming very fashionable places to live at last. So we're seeing big demographic changes in places like Worthing, where lots of people have moved down from London uh, and from in, inner cities into Worthing. 16% of the house sales in Worthing last year were for people from London. So people um, faced with lockdown in flats and places with tiny, tiny gardens, um, you know, wanted somewhere to get out to be able to breathe fresh air and exercise. And a lot of people discovered the coast and coastal living for the for the first time as, uh, as well. So I think we are seeing in, in constituencies like mine, which traditionally have been very largely retirement towns with an elderly population, the, the average age has been coming down quite substantially as we see new younger people, younger families moving into that uh, that whole area. That is going to put a lot of pressure on the local economy and on the quality of education to, you know, produce good, better quality education opportunities uh, for people moving uh, moving in, particularly those, you know, they're, they're coming from wealthier communities and bringing wealth to the to the coast as well. So, um, in just in the last few years, I think we've started to see some real transformation going on in coastal communities because lots of people are moving down to the down to the coast and they're becoming quite fashionable and quite buzzing buzzing areas you know Worthing was always regarded as a rather sleepy old retirement town um I think there was an article in the Sunday Times or one of the Sunday newspapers saying it's one of the 10 hot spots in the uh, in the UK and becoming one of the coolest um, towns in the uh, uh, in the country great so this is happening very quickly so the last thing we want is for everybody's nice new house to be washed out by climate change so hence we've got to defend the sea defend the beaches against the sea Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Maybe, maybe I can ask uh, Charlie directly and if, if, if you're comfortable with the question. But speaking specifically about uh, the role for that communities can play in, in transformation adaptation, um, do, do you think that, uh, and Tim just spoke about uh, upskilling those communities and, and their role in it, in, in the adaptation process, but um, do you think that there are opportunities for them to be involved in it at this, at this point? Uh, and if so, um, if and, and, and do you think that what is it that we can do that needs to be done, uh, actually, to enable and support uh, their involvement in the process? So I, I think it's essential that the communities are involved in in any process that's, that's going to be directly affecting them. Um, and, you know, it, it's we can't force changes um, on communities. What we need to do is convince them that, that what we think is the best thing to do is is the best thing to do and the best option um, and a lot of that comes really from education and you know and and ensuring that people understand what the coast is and the dynamic nature of the environment in which you know which makes it such a nice place to live um, you know that that part of that comes with that is the fact that it's it's going to be ever-changing and we need to either protect or adapt um, to those changes or allow them to happen depending on the on the particular situation and some of the challenges around that are that you know as, as Tim said if you've got new influx of people moving into the coast they might not be as familiar um, with the kind of risks um, that that exist at the coast in terms of coastal flooding coastal erosion um, and so it's a it's 
it's kind of a, got to be a constant conversation. It can't just be, you know, you visit a coastal community once and tell them lots of stuff about the coast and then you move away and, and, and hope that, that that allows you to, to make some change in the future. Um, because, you know, the, the demographic will change, the population will change. Um, and so you've got to kind of, we've got to embed it, I think, in society to understand um, more about coastal processes and about coastal change and about the the upcoming challenges that we're going to have with with climate change um, in order to get anything that's transformational done. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Um, Owe, would you, do you have any anything to add on, on that specific point about the community's involvement? I, I, I mean, I chime with Charlie that communities are essential to be involved. The, the main point is that it's an opportunity. If Worthing gets lots of young, dynamic people from, from London, they might be a lot more open and more clued up and switched on in terms of climate change, climate catastrophe, sea level rise. They may see the coast in a different way to people that, that move as a retirement home to, 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 to have their nest egg, basically, in, in places like Pagham or so. They, they, they will have a different attitude to future and what they want from the coast um, other than maybe just sitting in the sunshine or so. And, and I think that is where we, where, we, where we need to go into the, well, we have the examples of, of transformational changes granted at the moment in places where there aren't any people like East Head or at Klimping. But we can see that, that the transformational changes are not as dramatic as people necessarily make out. And as I said, there's there, there is time. And if you start the transformational, if you start the transformation now, in 50 years time, you will end up with a much more sustainable, transformed community on the coast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Tim, maybe I could ask you this question because I think it's uh, being uh, the, the MP on, on the podcast, maybe you're the best place to answer it. So talking about enabling transformation adaptation, we're, we're all in, a, in an agreement here in alignment around the, the approach that needs to be taken and, and the involvement of communities, for example. Uh, but what, what sort of support is needed, do you think, the development of institutional and governance structures or the allocation of financial resources or the developments of, of policies, any changes in the, in the policies that are in place. So what needs to be done to present like a, a, a greater framework for, uh, for the future? Well, I think the, the, the first thing we've got to recognize, which is what I started my comments on at the, the beginning of the, the recording, was for government to recognize that coastal communities are facing particular challenges around deprivation and all those other factors that I uh, that I mentioned. Uh, and I think because when people think of West Sussex, East Sussex or whatever, they think of a fairly affluent part of the uh, of the the country close to London sort of commuters people working in the uh, in the city very rural but actually west west sussex and east sussex similarly uh, is very much a tale of two two communities you have those more deprived uh, populations on the uh, on the coastal strips uh, and uh, you have the more affluent population. The trouble is, when you put the whole lot together, we come out as you know average above um, average overall. But that masks those po- pockets of deprivation. Uh, and there are many other counties around the country where you've got coastal uh, communities who are in a similar 
position. So I think, one, we need to get recognition that coastal communities have a problem. And then secondly, I mean, we put forward this this suggestion that just as we had the City uh, Challenge Fund for schools in London 20 years ago, we need to come up with something similar for coastal communities with, with the primary focus on education, because, you know, if you're not getting education uh, right, you're not upskilling the, the future generations, then you're going to have that, the, that those cycles of, uh, of, of lower skilled um, jobs and everything for the, uh, uh, for the future. So we, we need to have specific funding uh, at, but specific support to recognise those uh, those problems, and we've got levelling up is a big thing for this government. So it's you know it's a, an oft used um, phrase, and I absolutely buy into that. And of course, a lot of it is seen as levelling up for northern communities, uh, which haven't had some of the uh, some of the investment uh, that we've seen in other parts of the of, of the country. But levelling up, if it is to work, must be about levelling up poorer communities with challenges wherever they are in the uh, in in the UK not just in northern municipal um, boroughs and you know we have many problems on the south coast where there are equivalent problems in in a city Manchester or or, or whatever they're different sorts of uh, problems but they are problems of disadvantage uh, and and deprivation so one we need recognition two we need specific projects and three we need to adapt the leveling up um, program to recognize that coastal communities need leveling up uh, with the with the rest of our county or you know the inland population as a as a whole and that will be a good start thank you tim i'm actually going to jump in here because i know it feels unbelievable but we're really pretty much hit time which i think is always a sign of a good conversation when it flies by and it feels like you've barely gotten into it um so i'm just going to wrap up for one to two minutes what i've taken away from today's discussion and then i'd really like to invite each of our guests to perhaps reflect on what their key thoughts or conclusions are on today's discussion, maybe something they've learned, maybe something they wanted to mention but didn't. What I heard, I guess as, as a listener and not necessarily a partaker in the conversation, is really that transformation adaptation on the coast is complicated, especially when you start involving people and communities and areas where people live and places they use. Um, but it seems that coastal change and the fact that coast change is an inherent part of being a coastal community. That came through strongly in the conversation as well. And that's both the physical changes as well as the social, demographic, economic changes that are specific to coastal areas. Um, I think there was a bit of a debate on the, the place or the, the, the use of and the benefits and the costs of natural and hard engineering options and, and what both of those opportunities can deliver and what we know about them. And I think, but I think at the heart of the conversation also was that in the end, it is about the communities who live on the coast. It's about recognising their needs as they express them and their value. And in that sense, I think all speakers touched at some point on um, both the dynamic nature of those communities in terms of demographic change, uh, social change, economic situation, but also in terms of, I guess, the challenges and also opportunities of upskilling um, learning, education, and having these coastal conversations and adaptation conversations from an evidence-based standing. So in that sense, I think my key conclusion is, is that, as I think all speakers have touched on, um, coasts and coastal communities are these unique places with specific needs. But because of that, whilst that brings challenges, it also brings real opportunities that we can try and build on 
if and when we're undergoing processes of adaptation on the coast. So I'm going to invite our guests to conclude in the opposite order to which I invited them to introduce themselves. So, ooh, if, I know, Charlie, if I'm not putting you on the spot too much, could you please perhaps offer your last few thoughts first? Yeah, so I, I, it's been a really fun conversation. I think one of the things that comes out of it is that we're all going to have different opinions um, about the best way um, to implement um, transformational adaptation or and even how we think about it and how we consider it. Um, but that's a good thing because that will allow us to really be innovative and explore all of the different options. Um, and it's something that is hard, but it, it will be necessary. So let's make the most of the opportunities it, it gives us um, to make those positive transformations. Thank you. Brilliant. A re really nice summary, I think. Ua, could I invite you to share your final thoughts next? Yes. I mean, levelling up is not transformational. and 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 the other thing that, that that struck me as transformational was in 2010, there was a little booklet produced by Building Futures Facing Up to Rising Sea Levels that really put out different visions for, in that case, Portsmouth and Hull. And, and you may not like one or the other of the vision, but at least if you put visions out, you can start discussing about the benefits and the disbenefits of each of them. Uh, having recently moved to Littlehampton, um, thinking about all those big areas of land up the Aran River that at some point will start to flood, increase the tidal range, increase the tidal prism, a already fast-flowing Aran through Littlehampton will become even faster and wants to erode. You think, well, what vision can you have for the Aran Valley and how the river enters the coast. And that discussion needs to start now because houses are put here, there and everywhere. And for example, alternative or secondary iron channel um, are something that, that, that might not be an option in 20 years time. Yeah, thank you. And I, I feel like your your final reflection really summarized something that you brought up or reminds us of something that you've brought up multiple times. And I think you said several times, you know, we can start these actions now. We have time. And I like that in your concluding comment, you're being a bit more forceful and you're saying, yes, but we not only can we start now, we hmm. really should be starting now while we still have time. Yes. Tim, you have the final word. Well, I mean, it's been a fascinating conversation and it's, and it's focused a lot on the environment. And I think the, 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 the major thing we probably all agree is what needs to happen to coastal communities is protection. And so that's protection from an environment, environmental point of view. We are, uh, as far as the so UK is concerned, in the front line of um, uh, climate uh, change, if you're living on the, uh, on the coast, as well as the many river valleys that we have flowing into the uh, sea down through Sussex, where there are big communities that have been prone to, uh, to flooding, you know, be it Lewis, be it Selsey uh, Bill further along and uh, the, the coast and, uh, and, and so on. So we have to recognise that we've got to do stuff to protect, uh, protect it and continue to protect it. But coastal communities um, have historically always been quite good at transforming themselves. So climate change is a sort of uh, um, a, a, a push, a prompt for coastal communities to be able to respond to uh, to that to defend themselves but also to bring new energy and dynamism be it through new people moving in be it through using technologies be it through 
take advantage of renewable energy and hydrogen and everything else, which uh, we have those advantages, as well as my great dream on this Sussex kelp farm, which I'm, um, I think is really exciting, but there's a long way to go to make it uh, to make it viable. Those are things that uniquely coastal communities uh, can take uh, take advantage of. Um, and if we can do that, then I think all the the social investment that needs to come um, in terms of upskilling and the education and the health outcomes will be brought up with it as uh, as well. So um, I think there's exciting prospects potentially for communi coastal communities, but we've got to start by recognising the, the very specific challenges across all those complicated areas, as you called it just now, Sian, as, um, that we need to acknowledge those and uh, have a proper comprehensive programme for how we deal with it. Wow, thank you. I think that that's a very suitable final statement to this podcast. And I think really all three closing statements here, again, on some key points that came up during the discussion about the unique nature, uh, and, well, nature, sorry, nature and society of um, coastal communities, the fact that we need to recognise that and take care of these areas, but also that they can, you know, they have the ability to transform. They've proven that again and again in the past. Um, and that there is an opportunity in this transformation to do something good, but that we need to take advantage of that momentum and that moment and make sure that we turn it, turn these challenges into opportunities. I really just want to thank our three guests again for your contributions, for your thoughts, for being so open with each other and so honest and so patient. And um, I hope whoever's listening has enjoyed this podcast. Thank you. This work was part of an ESRC South Coast Doctoral Training Program Fellowship funded through the UKRI ESRC ES slash W 0061 89 slash 1.